This is The Authentic Professional. Real discussions with real people who work real jobs and live real lives. The Authentic Professional is hosted by Jacinta Gallant, a collaborative lawyer, mediator, and conflict trainer who decided to bring more of who she is to what she does. I'm Jacinta Gallant. And I'm Taylor Smiley. My co-producer, associate lawyer, and my daughter. That's me. (laughs) This is take three of our introduction because I was gushing too much about Taylor a little while ago. Yeah, even at 27, I still get a little embarrassed by my mom sometimes. Yeah, well, that's what we're here for. (laughs) We had a great interview with Francesca King, a lawyer, a good friend of mine in Milan, Italy. And I'm wondering what you thought of it. I thought it was great. I'm a huge fan of Francesca. She's so nice to listen to what she says and her accent and everything about her. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. I like what she had to say. I mean, it, it, it felt like she was talking about purpose. Yeah. And finding purpose within your profession, which might, it might be a different purpose than you started out with at the very beginning for her, especially. Yeah, like being really interested in a lot of mafia killings of judges to motivate her to go to law school. Yeah, and then working in a corporate firm for a little while after she graduated and doing her PhD in focusing on a criminal law aspect. So she knows a bit of everything, a lot of everything. Yeah, she does. So, you know, she's raised a family, managed teenagers in a lockdown in Milan that was extreme and and long. And it sounds to me like like many lawyers, like many of the people that we've interviewed, but also like you, and to be fair, like me, she's had to address a lot of the shoulds, the things that she thinks or thought she should be doing as a lawyer. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting part of this whole podcast is this sense that we have that maybe we're supposed to be doing a certain thing and acting in a certain way, and it just doesn't fit our values or, or, or our sense of purpose. Yeah, I liked what she said that when she first started out as a lawyer uh, until more recently, she felt like she had to be firm and tough and even nasty or aggressive, but that didn't jive with how she really felt she was being true to herself. She talked about how she smiles a lot and how she felt like she couldn't do that, but that over the years she's come to appreciate that she can be herself and be happy and still be an excellent advocate for her clients. Yeah. And, and, and I like how we revisited the whole question of personality type, which we talked about in podcast one. And well, she's almost like you. Yeah. She's just one letter off from me (laughs) and she's only one letter off from you also. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so listeners, you, if you liked the podcast we did with Kirsten Lund talking about personality type, which is episode one, you might like the way we revisit this because um, Francesca is an INFP. And so where she's like me is the P, which kind of drives Taylor crazy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole idea that she, I asked her to do the personality type assessment because I was curious myself, having known her for a number of years. And I've seen her move into like serious leadership roles. And I think that it's really important to look at the fact that no matter what your personality type is, 
if you're living your purpose, you're going to show up as a leader in your community or in your profession. Yeah, totally. And she noticed that doing her personality type really fit with what she already knew about herself, that she doesn't love a whole lot of detail work, though, as lawyers, we have to do a lot of detail work, but that she likes more kind of intuitive or imaginative ways to approach solving problems for her clients. Yeah, like like many of us do who, well, who take a slightly different path to practicing law. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it was really great to hear that doing something as complex, but in some ways simple as a personality type inventory can help you understand yourself, which is something you and I have learned about each other. It helps us understand each other as well. Yeah. I'm still working on understanding myself. (laughs) I think if you were to be honest, you're still working on understanding your mother too. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're really excited for you to hear from Francesca and in particular because we're launching this podcast in September 2020 and Francesca is the president of the International Academy for Collaborative Professionals, the IACP, and our annual conference is coming up in less than a month, and it's virtual. So we've all been doing a little bit more Zooming than we like and perhaps living in that virtual altered reality because of the pandemic. Uh, I hope that listening to this podcast will help inspire you to live your purpose. Yeah, and be true to who you are and who you want to be, no matter what profession you're in. Yeah, because it's not just lawyers that feel stuck in some mold sometimes. No, I think everyone feels stuck with what they should be. And it's hard It's hard to get out of that mindset. Yeah. So if you're not a lawyer and you're listening, like one of our listeners who's a teacher and really saw herself in some of the conversations we've had with lawyers... Because many of us, no matter what our profession is, we feel that we're put into a box or that we're categorized based on what we do. So we're hoping this will inspire you. Listen in. Today's guest is Francesca King. She's a family lawyer and mediator in Milano, Italy. She specializes in helping families through conflict situations. And she's among the first Italian lawyers trained in collaborative practice. Francesca is committed to supporting the growth of collaborative practice around the world, and in fact is so committed that she is currently the president of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, IACP. She's a friend, she's beautiful, she's so fluently Italian and English that I'm really happy to welcome her to the show. Benvenuta. Thank you, Jacinta. Well, thanks for joining me. You have had a few months of very, very interesting life in Milan. How have you been coping? Um, Well, it's been been hard and uh, challenging at some parts of it, but it's also, I think we've also learned a lot about how we could live in a sort of different way. Milan is a very... Uh, frantic and busy city. So professionals have also always worked a lot. So from early morning till evening and, you know, having something quick to eat uh, for lunch and brushing all the time. I think we're teased in many parts of Italy for this. I would Uh, say so. I didn't know. (laughs) You didn't know that, yes. And so this sort of being forced to slow down, uh, 
even just that was quite a shock for many of us, uh, being forced to stay at home and away from work. And uh, that was also another shock for many of us. And um, the first month was quite hard because we really had to stay at home. Uh, we couldn't go out unless we had an urgent matter, either for work or safety or health. Uh, but the, the the rule was you should stay at home. And um, we did. Uh, I think we were a bit surprised of ourselves because we've not been always a very sort of obedient <laughs> and, you know, person to the rules country. And instead we were. I think we were very scared. Or So we, we discovered ourselves as obedient and we stayed at home. And uh, there was a lot of fun things happening at, at a certain point, like, you know, the balcony singing part. I think you've heard about that. Yes. <laughs> uh, so at six o'clock, there was that happening. There were a lot of jokes about the only ones who were allowed out were people who had dogs. So there were a lot of jokes going on about leasing dogs to go out for a walk or <laughs> dogs that were so tired because they were kept out all day by, <laughs> by their owners. Um, but uh, there was a lot of sadness as well because, of course, we were hit quite hard, especially in my region in Lombardy. There were towns that were really, really... Uh, suffered a lot, like the area around Bergamo, which is a small town just an hour from Milan. Um, and so that was also a difficult part, you know, to live with. And then in a, in a, in a city that's always very noisy, there's a lot of traffic and things going on. The silence was beautiful. We, we discovered how many birds we have, how many animals we have, and uh, it was really nice. But at the same time, you could hear the ambulances much more. And that was, of course, you know, the, the two notes that we were carrying together. It's uh, a city with a lot of pollution because it's situated in this plain. So there's not much wind and uh, it's in the, a very industrialized area. And so the air was not, it's not been very good in the last years. And instead, we had this beautiful spring, this incredible blue sky all the time, this pure air. It was really nice to rediscover that, discover how, in a way, how easy it is to go back to to something better. Uh, we're already losing it right now. We're back to traffic. But um, it was a, a, an interesting time, really. So where you had beautiful things and, and, you know, hard things going on at the same time. Well, certainly most of the world loves Italy. I mean, <laughs> it's a place that people go to or dream of going to and... Uh, I just remember the, the beautiful, welcoming experience of the conference that you all hosted in Milan. What mm. was that, five years ago? So Yeah, I think it was 2014, I think. Yeah, and so, it was, so. it was a wonderful gathering. And it's easy when you're there as a visitor to miss the busyness, right? To mm. miss that Milan is this, it's really, a, it's a financial center as well. Mm. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about really how you became you. What, what were your influences growing up? I already teased out the idea that you've got an English side to you. So, so tell us more. Um, well, I was, I was born in Switzerland, but just by chance, just over the border. But I grew up in Milan. Uh, my mother is really from Milan. Her family is from Milan. My father was English. He was a designer. He came to Milan in, in the 60s, late 60s, because he wanted to see how this, you know, the design world around Milan was working and with the idea of staying just one year. And instead he stayed 
call it life, really. So I, I grew up in this sort of mixed environment. So I would go home to England uh, for holidays to my grandparents, my uncles and aunts. But most of the time I lived in, in Milan and grew up here, went to school here. Uh, I don't know how I decided to become a lawyer. Uh, my, my father's family was a sort of artist family, artistic family. So he was a designer. His parents were art teachers. His, his father was supposed to, was going to be probably a, uh, an important artist, but then got, got uh, caught up in the war and went to war and came back. And it was all changed mm. and became a teacher and probably suffered a bit about that. Uh, but so that was an environment that was in my house a lot. I think I never felt I was so good at that part. So I sort of shifted to a more <laughs> academic kind of studies, you know, like I had to find my place that was somewhere different. So I was always, you know, a, a brilliant student in all the sort of, yeah, academic part, you know, studying and not very good at all the hand-making, artistic. I, I think I suffered a bit about that because I know in my family instead everybody was so keen in doing things. My father was wood carving or building things and I totally, <laughs> totally incapable of even thinking that way, you know? So I, I sort of shifted there and I, I think I went to law school because I was always interested in civil rights and I wanted to do something about that. And when I was, during those years in university, we had uh, in law school, there's, there's, there was a lot of facts related to the, the mafia in Sicily going on, judges being killed in, in very dramatic ways. So I, I think I was part of a whole wave of, uh, you know, feeling that you could be involved in the judicial system, doing the right thing for your country, for living in a country that respected rules. And then we all had another wave of uh, discovering corruption in our political system in the same years. And so there was all that sort of moral issue as well going on. So that's, I think, what, what moved me. And I, I, I graduated in criminal law and I wanted to be a judge. <laughs> uh, and then after a while... I sort of discovered I didn't like the idea of judging people. <laughs> it was just something that, so I liked it in theory, but I could not think of doing it practically, you know? Well, you learned something and, about uh, yourself. That's that's really cool. Yes, yes, that's, that's true. And so I sort of became a lawyer, but like as a, a bit of a second choice thing. I uh, didn't really know what, what I wanted to do. And I started, I wanted to work as I, I had done a PhD in university, had done a lot of studying and I wanted to go and start, and start working and earning some money. And so uh, I started to work in a law firm that did essentially commercial uh, law, sort of contracts and all of that. They really liked how fluent I was in English. I was very, I think, useful for them. And I had a nice couple of years there enjoying the the growing confidence of that role. Um, yes. But after a while, I really discovered that I didn't really like it. I wasn't into it. I didn't find a kind of connection that, that spoke to me in some way. And then I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to have children. And so I had my, my daughter was born and uh, the, the hours at this firm were very tough. So meetings were always fixed at like six o'clock in the evening, even when it was not necessary. Oh, yes. And I found it sort of hard there. And I don't know, I can't remember really how, but I took a chance of helping somebody through his uh, separation, a client of the firm. It was quite an easy thing, but 
I think that the owner of the legal firm thought that as a woman I could deal with it and sort of put me in that position, you know, that kind of condescendent thing, you know. But I think I was good enough not to be offended, but to take that as an opportunity. And I, I discovered I liked it, that even if that wasn't a particularly difficult case, I was able to find myself useful and connect with that story. And so I convinced them that it was a good idea to have a family division in the firm and I would go for it. So I did a lot of self-training, self-learning to to put myself in a position that could make sense. And so that's how I I became a family lawyer. So it was a bit sort of a winding road there. (laughs) What do you think was so attractive to you, switching out of the corporate commercial era into this area that many people think is hands off no way I don't want that yeah what do you think was the difference I think I like well the easy answer is that I'm I connect more with people's life stories in a way and I manage to do that better when they're talking about their family or their sort of personal life but in the end I think that I feel I'm more capable of helping people in this area than in others I think I put I'm able to put in what I do a bit more of myself. I think I'm a good listener. I'm not something I've discovered recently. I'm not so interested in details, and uh, but in you know in the story. And when I talk, that helps me. I think listen to people's stories without getting involved in too much of the question and answer lawyer right. thing. And that that is, I just found that it was helpful. And so I I think I found something where I could express myself more in some way. Well, interestingly, we uh, listeners who listened to episode number one would know that we interviewed Kirsten Lund, who was a Myers-Briggs type inventory assessor. And, and in anticipation of this interview, I asked you if you would do your MBTI assessment. And so you have done some work with Kirsten. And yep. why don't you tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, what are your letters? Uh, my letters are INFP. Right. So that right. means introverted, Introvert. intuitive, Feeling, perceiving. Exactly. And I'm an ENFP. So I'm extroverted, intuitive, feeling, perceiving. And so um, interestingly, coming out of a corporate commercial world where you would have had to pay a lot of attention to detail, you reflected now that your desire for the more intuitive approach, the more imaginative approach to interacting and communicating is, is more appealing to you. And that this type might explain that. Yes, that's something I thought when I did the the test and reading the results. Uh, That made a lot of sense to me because there's still a lot of detail work as a lawyer that you have to go through when you write an agreement. You know, you have to make sure that everything is sort of connected and works. And, you know, every word has its proper sense. And, you know, every clause has its proper meaning with the one that comes before and the one that comes after. And I know I'm, I'm good at that. It's not that I don't. I'm not good at that, but it's not the part that I like. You know, right. it's, it's something that I have to do. I know how to do it. I've been trained to. I know it's important. But what I really like is, is the, the human connection that I get with people when I meet them. And yeah. uh, I've learned also to consider that, you know, it's not a, like an appointment. It's I really encounter somebody. I, you know, I, I meet another human being when I have that first consultation. And that also gives me, puts it in a totally different uh, perspective as well. 
when you meet somebody in that in that way. Well, that's interesting because I think that if there is such a thing as a typical lawyer, okay, so I, I really mm. think that this show is showing how we are a complex group of human beings on this earth. Yeah. <laughs> However, uh, law school does tend to attract those who are drawn to detail and an, and an objective approach to, an, to analyzing and making decisions. And that in many ways, those of us who are, and that would include you and me, on the other side around detail and also how you make decisions can feel like we're fish out of water. And I'm wondering if you, when you think about it, sometimes I define it as a struggle to be authentically me in my work. Uh, what, yes. What, can, you, can you track your own experience? Because part of it's maturity and confidence, but mm. the other part of it is finding your fit. How important is it to you to bring authenticity to your work? It's very important, I discovered. Um, I think for a lot of years, I was sort of trapped in uh, a role that I thought I had to play as a lawyer. So from the way you, you dress, the way you you talk, you speak, uh, the sort of confidence and that you have to show and all of that. Um, I really thought I had to match that picture. I've always had this sort of smiling face, which is my face. And I, I remember as a young lawyer, starting to do family law and clients saying to me, but then you will become nasty after a while. You will become a tough lawyer. And I would say, yes, yes, I will. (laughs) But no, (laughs) I can be uh, very sort of firm and even tough when needed. I'm, I'm, I know I can sort of pursue my client's interests, but I don't need to be a nasty or aggressive person to do that. And I've learned that. I've learned that I can say, no, that's, if you need that, if you need the bulldog face, you won't have it from me. So you need somebody else. And that was a process. And I think that's discovering also consensual dispute resolution. So the whole world of mediation and collaborative uh, really helped me as well in finding a way to be myself in doing what I like to do, which is helping families or helping people that are going through that conflict. So when you think about, you know, you've got familial experiences growing up, going to law school, educational experiences. We forgot to mention that even after law school, you went off and did your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> so you are a, like a bit of a tryhard. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I was doing uh, something in criminal law, but it was related to families because it was about battered women who kill their spouses. It was a sort of research in how different judicial systems were dealing with those cases. So different family conflicts, but families were there and conflicts as well. <laughs> right, because so much of our work includes families where yeah. risk, yeah. safety, yeah. comfort is not always a given. Mm. We're often dealing with families who are in very challenging situations. And so I'm wondering, when you think about now, when you think about your work with clients, how how does one's personal experience appropriately intersect with our work? Um, that's, that's difficult, and it's always been a bit of a question mark for me. I've seen a lot. Something I don't like in many family lawyers is when you can see them really take the sides of their clients, really feel their clients' uh, issues as their own. And I've, I've always thought there is a sort of, line that you have to be aware of between feeling the empathy being able to actually you know fit those shoes and understand those issues 
without making them your own. You know, that, that, yes. that line that you have to sort of walk through. And the funny thing is that I've, I come from a family that was very sort of happy family. My parents were happily married. Uh, I didn't really actually live any family conflict close to me or... And so I, as I was doing this as a job, it touched me, but it didn't really touch me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then last year I went through my own divorce and uh, after sort of 20 years, of, uh, uh, I would say happy wedding, yes, <laughs> happy yes. marriage. And it suddenly was very different. You know, suddenly hearing those stories uh, was actually opening myself uh, a lot of resignating, you know, I don't know how you say uh, when you have a, a resignating place where everything sort of uh, moves something or touches something. And uh, and so I learned how hard it is. Uh, I hadn't actually had to do that before, to, to manage to keep that distance, to not make your own feelings become part of the issue. I think it was very useful for me to have done prior to all this a lot of, well, I don't know if it's a lot, but some work on myself and how, what triggers me, what, you know, I'm always, always been interested in that inside-out part, so I, I, I had worked on it, and I think that helped me. It didn't, but it was, it was an experience, yes. Well, for sure. I mean, my mother, who just turned 84 and is wise and, and still healthy and wonderful, <laughs> just talks about the fact that <clears throat> there's still things to learn, and she's, sometimes she really hates that. <laughs> she's like, why can't I already know all of this? Why isn't the learning experience over yet? And it's it's it truly is the lifelong journey. Sometimes yeah. I wonder whether law school and a law career doesn't set us up to think we need to be the know-it-all. That yeah. that we can stop learning because our very occupation seems, and I don't think it's it should be this way, but it seems to be all about having the right answer, or at least not asking the wrong question. Mm. Yeah. And so when you think about the Italian culture and your being involved from the beginning in this shift from a more adversarial approach to family law to this change we're trying to make around the world that families mm-hmm. see collaboration and mediation as their first choice really as hard as it is can you talk about the italian experience um well i think we in in milan and i think it was the first place we heard about collaborative practice in 2010, so uh, only 10 years ago in some way. It's quite a recent, uh, it feels a lot of ages ago, if I think of all the changes we went through, but uh, it's not that much, in fact. And there were a lot of, I remember the first training we had, uh, our trainers were Canadian, in fact. It was Corey Kalinowski and Natalie Boutet that came to, to Italy and, and had our first training. We were only lawyers, and it was... Um, there were a lot of lawyers that were there because they thought this is something new and we have to get there and see what it is and, you know, make ourselves in the right place at the right moment. But there were another whole group, which is those that remained collaborative, that um, were just frustrated with the way they were actually helping families or not helping families with their work. And so they were really looking for something different. And so that's how we how we started. And um, I always thought that I a lot of us 
say when they said, ah, during our, my first collaborative training, I saw the light. I understood a totally different <laughs> world. I always thought about myself that I just found something that was fitting for me. Like, yes, I like this. That's what I want. Right. But I, I want to be a lawyer. I just want to be a nice lawyer <laughs> you know, right. kind of <laughs> approach. But wait, I mean, some of the criticism of collaborative is that it's all about being nice. Mm. And so... How did you focus? How did you figure out how to still be an advocate while being able to describe yourself in a way that's true to you? Hmm. I think because, uh, in a way, uh, I find myself more able to be an ally for my client in this context because I can be aligned and an ally, you know, for my client and on his side and in his corner. But at the same time, I don't have to waste time or struggle in being adversarial with the other part. It makes me be more focused on my client in some way. And when you understand that if you want to help your clients, uh, your client meet his needs or her needs, you have to understand the other person as well, the other party. This is something that comes quite natural to me to try and understand the people that are in a room with me and to connect with them. That is a gift that I can really use in, in collaborative and, and make it something useful. And uh, I don't have to struggle to do that. While I, I have to struggle to be adversarial, I have to struggle to be that sort of party, that that lawyer that only sustains his client's position without even thinking of what's happening around. This is something that I know how to do. I, I can focus to do, but it's not being myself. So it's something that I have to really work. Instead, mm. to, to sit in a room and know that I'm helping somebody, I'm specifically helping somebody, but I can do that while understanding the context, while understanding other people's feelings. That just comes easier to me. So, yeah. Well, it's like it's, this, it's hidden behind a screen in a litigation yeah. environment. And yeah. lawyer, uh, listeners who aren't lawyers might even be shocked to hear that as a family lawyer in Canada, and I would say North America, it's not my job to worry about the kids. In a litigation yeah. environment, it's the judge's job to make a decision on what the judge yeah. thinks is in the best interest of these children. And so, like, I don't, I don't want to label lawyers as heartless who don't care, but actually, mm-hmm. in litigation, it isn't our job. And that, the fact that that was even a debate is what scared me away from litigation, finally. Yeah, so that, yeah you're right. I, it's crazy. So, so, so because there's relationships, there's not just, it's not just about emotions. It's about, it's about relationships that typically will have to continue. And I just find it more interesting. Yes. I, I, I'm more interested in my day job when I'm able to work with the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. I've always um, really tried to to find a way to find an agreement, even in difficult cases. But I've experienced how bad it is to find agreement in a in a difficult context when you're not really uh, understanding what's important to people, when you're trying to impose an agreement that meets somebody else's standards, even your own or the judges or yes. society's standards. And how these agreements, um, we call them corridor agreements. So the agreements that are reached in a corridor in front of a judge's room before you have the hearing are just so bad. And and they only last a couple of days. And then you're back. They're back fighting, you know. So uh, that's uh, kind of uh, 
taught me how important it is even the process with which you reach an agreement is important. Yes. Not only the, the final outcome. Well, yeah, you'll um, often hear people yeah. say, I can live with what happened. I just don't like the way it happened. Yeah. But how things come to be can be more impactful than what comes to be, and particularly mm. with relationships. So all of this led you to the point that now you are the leader of the international collaborative movement as president of the IACP. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this pandemic may even rob you of your, of your, the cool speech you get to make at our annual conference, which, you, which is supposed to happen in Toronto. And we're not sure if it's going to. Here we are living with all this uncertainty and you're trying to lead the ship. What's it been like leading our international organization? Uh, it's been challenging. Um, so on a personal note, the funny note is that uh, what really draw me, I think, to do the international work is I like traveling. I like meeting <laughs> people from different countries. I like moving, you know. So I think it's quite a paradox that this year we, you can't travel. You can't go anywhere. You can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, actually, you know, we, the we, lesson I have to learn is, okay, you can't have what you want always. You know, well, you and, I were you and I were supposed to be recording this podcast in Edinburgh in March at the European yeah. Conference. So here we are in our homes still. So yeah, yeah okay, so you like to travel, but you still have to be a leader. How's it, how yes. is that? So that, that's the funny part. But then you have to be a leader in, in all this uncertainty. And uh, it's uh, people, I think a good thing was that Milan was a place where things happened very, uh, at the very beginning. So I was experiencing uh, what was going to happen to a lot of other people before. And I think that put me in a, in a better position to actually be the one making taking decisions or talking to people and being that kind of you know resilient leader that I I would like to be and mm -hmm. you know understand what's what's going on and how to help people deal with their emotions in this in this moment uh, I think that helped me and then I don't know I think it was just uh learning to live with uncertainty and uh, about everything, about all of the, you know, travels we had planned and the conferences and how to take decisions and uh, how to help understand, how to help people understand that certain decisions that might seem obvious need time to be taken or to be communicated. And it's been, yes, a bit challenging some, sometimes, I think, yes. But interesting. I think it was a great learning curve um, for me, in a way. Well, we live in interesting times, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think that the IACP was very lucky to have you at the helm this year. Mm. So I really thank want to you. thank you for the service, for the humility, the friendliness, the smile, and the grace with which you've led us through this difficult time as a community of collaborative professionals who really care about each other and about the clients that we serve. So, Thank you. I mean, I guess the, the only other question I have is, how did women in Milan get through a pandemic when they couldn't wear their fashionable clothing? <laughs> <laughs> well, with a, a, lot, a lot of jokes going how you can wear your clothes and you can go to the hairdresser, you can have your hands done, you know, mm. all of that. Um, and, you know, jokes about just getting dressed to go out and throw your garbage or do something <laughs> funny like that. 
But uh, I discovered that after three months of staying at home, the hardest part was putting back shoes. I'm not a very high heel shoe kind of woman, but I do like wearing <laughs> you know sort of nice shoes and I'm full of blisters at the moment oh, no, and yes. I don't think I'm the only one it's sort of like you just got used to a more casual way of you know getting dressed or so you might have a nice blouse but you have jeans underneath because <laughs> nobody sees it you know <laughs> and you're right. But <laughs> right well yeah. I hope that it's I'll fun. get to see you in your Italian fashion yes sometime very soon I hope so too thanks for taking I the time to so. chat thank you Are you a family lawyer who wants more meaningful engagement with your clients, especially right now? Our family in two homes can help. Stand out as an innovative lawyer who cares. Visit intohomes.com.